Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, dinner out is a go. I mean, it, it's not quite Danny Boy and Broadsword, but dinner out was pretty cool. <laughs> not bad. Not too bad. Yeah. But... We have a guest, and he should be introed, hailing from the Penghu Islands. It is, of course, Chris Carr from the Secrets and Spies podcast. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello. I'm good. I'm enjoying my time on the island. <laughs> your, your retirement yeah. or prison. Is, yeah, I don't well, know which one I, it is. I'd pick retirement over prison, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, it's about time we had you on the show. You know, we've been part of sort of the spy podcast family for a while, and we've got some things in the works as part of that too, mm. actually, which is very interesting, which we'll reveal down the line. But I wanted to save a good film for you. So this is this is the one. We won't intro that just yet, but I want to know a bit more about you, Chris. Now, we'll talk about the podcast in a second, but sort of what made you interested in spies and spy movies? Yeah, well, gosh, um, I my love of film and espionage kind of go hand in hand. So it's like, um, I yeah, you know, like most kids of my generation, I grew up on sort of James Bond, a bit of Man from Uncle, Get Smart. Uh, people forget Get Smart, but that was quite big in the nineties uh, on reruns and stuff. Um, and I just think it's always been that that pull to travel and adventure that sort of first of all drew me into an interest in espionage because, quite frankly, my childhood was you know quite boring in places you know um so so you know as a kid you're looking for for something exciting and um where i grew up as well there is a little bit of espionage history and um so i'll try to go into it briefly but um one when i was uh, 16 years old though 17 years old i was working part-time at a supermarket and i had a customer who looked familiar to me he was a russian man and he looked very familiar and i was like i, I know him from somewhere and i was racking my brain for ages and i realized that he was a former kgb officer who defected to the west in the 80s and he was a technical advisor on a tv show i used to watch called wanted wanted's a bit like channel 4's hunted where members of the public go on the run and um, professional trackers have to find them and the difference with wanted was that the members of the public um when it came to the show being broadcast the show was broadcast live and they had to wait in a phone booth and the trackers had one hour left to find them and oleg gordievsky who was the spy um he used to be a technical advisor and give them advice so he would talk to them about like how to you know survive on the run how to sort of use disguises and things like that so i had this memory i remember the face but i was terrible with the name and this is pre-Google, so it wasn't easy to sort of exactly look up which Russian spy you might have seen. It was only a, about a year afterwards that I saw a Cold War documentary on the BBC, and there was his name, Oleg Gordievsky. So I finally plucked up the courage to ask him, are you Oleg Gordievsky? And he said, yes, I am. And um, and then he, like any good author, recommended I read his book uh, called Next Stop Execution. <laughs> and, um, and actually that book really changed everything I thought I knew about espionage. So, you know, growing up thinking espionage is all about this sort of British spy or American spy who goes undercover and breaks into things and does stuff. In fact, it's very far from the truth. What actually happens, and I think um, what the film we're going to talk about today shows quite well, is how a Western agent um, uses sort of other people and locals to kind of do that dangerous work and get the information that they want. So, um, 
reading Next Stop Execution really kind of fired up my interest in espionage. And then obviously 9-11 happened um, and then the war on terror. And it kind of was very obvious uh, with 9-11 that this was going to be the era of espionage. And so, you know, I just read as many books as I could. There was another book called The Big Breach that came out in early 2001 that was a big influence on me as well. And I just found that I ended up reading so many spy books and I could read them so quickly and easily. And, and just there was something about this topic. Um, and one of the things, because I've tried to analyze this because I'm, I'm a filmmaker as well. And um, I was trying to work out what is it that draws me to espionage? And I think what I, I, what I think it is, is that I'm really interested by two people of opposing sides sort of ending up in the same room together and having to sort of talk about their perspective and have to trust each other in this world of mistrust because espionage does require an element of trust even though you really shouldn't trust anybody so it, it's such an interesting kind of conflict there i think well i mean i don't have as a good a story i used to work in a supermarket myself and my only brush with fame was uh, claire from steps <laughs> and she was an absolute bitch so you know i, I really can't compare that well we did have anthea turner <laughs> I got that beat. I guess I had Halle Berry and Jessica Alba came into the grocery store I worked at. So I got you beat, Scott. Oh. They were both delightful. <laughs> oh, well, Halle Berry's got the spy connection with um, with Die Another Day, which has a... There is a slight technical connection to the film talk about with Die Another Day. I could mention a bit later if you like. So there we are. <laughs> well, Jessica Alba also has Spy Kids 4. So... Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> We've all been among spy royalty, I guess. <laughs> In our own way, yes. <laughs> yes. So I am curious, you know, as you've, you know, dove in so much more into real world spy craft in your interests do you still have an affection for going back to the more escapist stuff or do you find yourself much more now at this point interested in you know lacare kind of stuff in real world spycraft yeah that's the my inner conflict now um i find it very hard to watch um escapist really escapist spy movies because i think what i liked about kind of like maybe 80s and 90s escapist spy films is there's an element of reality to it. Like, for example, License to Kill is my favourite Bond film because there's a there's a very real feeling to it and it's very much of its time. And, um, you know, but it's still escapist. It's still kind of fun. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of find it difficult now. The more it, I, I think it's because because I, I read so much about it. It's, it's not it's my profession because I, I've never worked for any um, intelligence service that I know of. Um, <laughs> but it's like... Um, it's it's yeah it's just difficult to sort of switch it off now so there's some spy films that are just to me are, are so stupid and are frustrating and i think a lot of people like for example if i were a doctor and watch medical dramas i'd probably be driven up the wall by them same with police shows and other things so i think i kind of suffer a bit from that now so yeah i do very much appreciate spy films that kind of make an effort to try and get things right and and again the other thing um like i'm developing projects and um you know working with writers is quite hard sometimes because some writers just go off on these really random tangents. And I'm like, no, no, that's so not what, what would happen. That's so <laughs> like, and I feel like I'm always like reining it in, but I feel like, oh God, I'm making it a bit boring. So it's a really difficult balance to try and find realism versus entertainment. And like with my own short film, The, the Dry Cleaner, um, that was one thing I did struggle with a little bit. I was trying to find something that was um, exciting 
um, but at the same time grounded in realism. And and when I did some research, um, so the film The Dry Clean is all about anti surveillance an anti surveillance technique, uh, which is what spies use before they meet each other. So just to give the audience a quick uh, rundown of what that is. So if I'm if I'm a, an intelligence officer and you are my asset, and we're going to go meet at a, a you know kind of quiet cafe somewhere. It would be a very bad idea if you and I just left where we are now and go straight to that meeting because I'm probably going to have surveillance on me because I'm an intelligence officer. You might have surveillance on you because you might be suspected of being a spy. And if we come together and made no effort to find out if we're being followed or not, then by the end of that meeting, we're all going to get arrested. So what you, what uh, professional intelligence officers do and also their asset are trained to do, they have to kind of create a route that can last maybe three to 10 hours and sometimes even longer just to work out if you're being followed or not. So, um, and, and also you've got to do it in such a way where no one knows that you're doing that. So, um, so yeah, because if you're taking like counter surveillance maneuvers and the people following you are going to realize that you're trained and there's something really dodgy. So, so it's a real interesting thing. So, um, for example, how you could do that, you could be going shopping and uh, pretend to go shopping. So you could start off be, by buying a newspaper, take that newspaper and then go and sit down in a cafe and buy a coffee. And while you're doing that, you're studying. Has anybody where you were buying a newspaper come with you to the coffee shop? Then you think, okay, there might be some people. So then you go from the coffee shop to buy a birthday card. And now I've got to go and write on that birthday card. So I'm going to go somewhere. Then I've got to go and post the birthday card. You know, So there's a sort of logic to what I'm doing. But at the same time, it's giving me an opportunity to study everybody around me. Everybody in the room, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. What? This entire episode is actually a long con. Uh, we're here to get you. Oh, are so you? this is what. This <laughs> oh, you've done well. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you actually queued up my next question. I was going to talk about your short film, The Dry Cleaner, because mm. I was reading on your website today, uh, chriscard.co.uk. There'll be a link in the show notes below. Um, the line was, and this is actually kind of the reason why we got you on for this when I read it a while back. This is this is the second paragraph. I've been a fan of political thrillers and spy films since I watched movies. Three Days of the Condor, Spy Game, The Conversation, and All the President's Men. So I'll give you a hint. This week's film is one of those four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, you know, you, you definitely you like the films, so that's it. But what, what have you taken from those films into this film? Oh, uh, sorry, into my film? Yes. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I think, like, with my film, uh, one of the things that fascinates me about Spy Game um was the use of memory and because uh, memory is a big part of espionage you know being able to recall information be able to work out where you are and so um very much my short film sort of in, is almost in sort of two timelines it's sort of the first timelines around recruitment and the second one is about yeah it's the present it's like will she work with our um our intelligence officer or not will the agent lydia work with george who's the intelligence officer so that's the first thing i think also like, three days the condor the kind of um i think that influenced the kind of the look of my film a little bit um there's also a bit of the ipocris file too actually which I yeah because the problem is when you're writing a website it's difficult you're gonna gotta like rein it in a bit and like and give people a shorthand of what is it you're about um all the president's men obviously is a great kind of um real life kind of conspiracy film about uh, watergate um and you know again that world of trust and mistrust and the conversation as well i mean the conversation is a fantastic spy film you know it's about audio surveillance and and um tony scott sort of directed the so-called spiritual sequel um oh god I forgot what it's called now enemy of the state enemy of the state which was enemy of the state is an okay film uh, i'm not the massive biggest fan of enemy of the state uh, not as much as a fan of spy game um and also 
Yeah, I, I, and also think like with those some of those films, well, Robert Redford's just so good in all those films too. Um, and and if anything, like his role in Three Days the Condor totally influences him in Spy Game, certainly in his look and so on. So I hope that helps. <laughs> well, I, I suppose then you know we'll chat a little bit more about the film and how people can find it. I believe it's on Amazon. Currently. Yeah, Amazon and Apple. So yeah, you can get it on both. It's something like one ninety nine. Or if you subscribe to my podcast, you can get a free copy. <laughs> well, that leads me beautifully <laughs> onto my next question about your podcast. So you run Secrets and Spies podcast, um, and you're coming at it for more about talking about real life spies, real life events across history, basically. Mm. Um, so what inspired you to do the podcast? It was my film, The Dry Cleaner. So um, I was by the time I made the film uh, and we started editing it, I was sitting on an awful lot of books that I've read. Um, and like being an independent filmmaker, it's sometimes a bit frustrating because things take a lot longer than you want them to. And um, and you kind of feel like there's a sense of you've got nothing to show for what you do sometimes. And I thought, this is crazy. Why am I sitting on all this research and not doing anything? You know, so there was thoughts in my mind of, oh, maybe I should do a documentary or I should do this, do that. But, um, but I was a big fan of podcasts around that time um and there's a show in particular i was a big fan of called the well it's two there's two there's spycast which is the uh, international spy museum's brilliant sort of long-going um podcast about espionage and there was also um an american political show called the bob seska show um and i kind of got into bob seska around when the snowden revelations came about and bob seska was quite critical of the reporting of the snowden revelations and um it just struck a chord with me and also um, I've never mentioned this publicly before, but um, I was a huge when I was a kid. I was a massive fan of a show called Midnight Caller, and I always wanted to be a DJ. <laughs> so it's like, so yes. I kind of like the idea of like you know because that show the DJ sort of solving crimes and stuff. I haven't quite got to that level yet, but you never know. Um, give it a few years, um, and and so I, there was something about um, that whole being a DJ thing that really appealed to me as well. So and and also I was the kid at school always told off for talking too much. Um, you know, I'm a big talker, as you're finding out. Um, and, and even on my show, I'm quite quiet, actually. But um, it, it, it's, yeah, so it, it's all just all kind of made sense. And then it's sort of then the podcast, so the, the original part of the podcast was kind of a strictly a companion to the film. So it was a lot of terrorism stuff at the beginning. And it was around about when I did the interview with Malcolm Nance and the connection to the the Russia potential connection to the... the um, the Trump election of 2016, that he sort of started to take a life of his own and then Russia became a theme. And then suddenly before I knew it, I was sort of, it just took off and it became its thing. And, and then over time, because it was originally called the Dry Cleaner Cast and I rebranded it in 2020 to make, and it made more sense being secrets and spies. Um, and it just sort of took a life on its own and it's just become a bit of a, a passion project that's just, I don't know, just keeps going. <laughs> wow. I mean, so when you're looking at content to create for the podcast and the stories you want to tell, what is sort of the drive for you? Like, what are the stories that really jump out that make you want to explore them more? Oh, that's a hot question. Um, <laughs> I think so. I'm always so I think like a lot of the historical episodes kind of have some sort of um, relationship to context of things that are happening now. So I do a look, so like, for example, Hitler's American Friends helps give you uh, an insight to maybe some of the neo-Nazi roots that are around on the kind of far right of American politics and, you know, Western politics, you know, there's all that. Also, like, there was an episode called Moscow Gold that was sort of about the... Um, 
the influence of Russia and Russian money on the kind of far left in Britain, which was quite interesting as well. Um, and then I was looking at sort of terrorism stories that were directly connected to my film. Um, yeah, because I wanted to know a lot more about the intricacies. And, the, and it's a complicated topic as well, because terrorism, especially um, Middle Eastern inspired terrorism, I'll put it that way, or Islamist inspired terrorism, you know, terrorism of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, because there's a, a racial and religious element to that terrorism, it suddenly gets into very icky territory. And, you know, and espionage itself as a topic can be a bit icky if not navigated carefully because it's about one state versus another. It's about, you know, um, the Chinese or the Russians versus the British and Americans. And if you don't handle it carefully, it can become quite, um, let's say, let's just say it could become quite racist if you're not careful. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and so, you know, I wanted to understand the kind of the real life roots of a lot of things that are going on in our world today. Um, and I, you know, I'm a nosy person, so I had any excuse to get a kind of peek behind the curtain in any way. I'm like, you know, I want to do it. And that's, that's also, I suppose, like, um, back to your earlier question about what, why I prefer certain films that are more grounded is because I'm still looking for that peek behind the curtain. Um, you know, I want to, you know, I prefer those books and films that have some connection to a real spy. Um, so like, you know, novels of John le Carre and stuff, we know he was a former intelligence officer. So he's got an insight that's quite different to Joe Bloggs, who just decides I'm going to write a spy film today. I'm definitely the Joe Bloggs who just talks about spy films every week <laughs> with no credentials with that. whatsoever. That. So that, <laughs> hey, that works for me. It's done okay so far. But I suppose last question before we talk about what we're talking about this week, and it's more about the podcast. Yeah, a lot of people will be listening to this will be the first time hearing you, Chris. And what I always like to do is sort of, you know, what's your touchstone episode? What's the one you point people to learn a bit more about what we do here? People can click over there and subscribe now and find that episode. Yeah, well, that is a tough question because it's like it's asking which was your favorite kid almost, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, with what's going on in the world right now, there's a really great episode about Russia today and conspiracy theories with Dr. Precious Chatterjee Doody. And uh, we talk about Russia today and conspiracy theories. So that's definitely one really good episode that really kind of touches a bit on um, the kind of the themes that inform espionage. Because what my podcast does do, it's not always directly about espionage, but it somehow is always about espionage. There's always a slight intelligence angle, even to the kind of philosophical, geopolitical things that we look into. Um, there's also another really interesting episode about um, money laundering and organized crime that for some reason is my most popular episode. Um, and it's a very good episode, but it's just it's quite funny that that's probably the most popular, even though, um, you know, I've done a lot of really interesting spy ones. And I think my my final favorite, um, which may even be my favorite, I was very lucky to chat with a former CIA officer called Frank Snepp, who was the one of the last men out of Saigon. You know, he was at the American embassy when it was evacuated. And he told me this, um, he basically told me about how he ran spies in Vietnam and about um, a Vietnamese spy called Vo Van Bar who saved American lives on those last days in Saigon. And um, that, that's actually my longest episode. Uh, it was nearly three hours. So um, yeah, definitely have a glass of whiskey if you can listen to that one. Hmm. Well, you know, you said you don't get a chance to talk much on your pod as everyone else. So this is your opportunity to sort of get it all off your chest. So I'm glad you can do it with us. And <laughs> uh, I think that cues up the film a little bit. So Cam, let us know. What are we talking about this week? We are talking about 2001's Spy Game, directed by Tony Scott and starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. This is one of those um, films that people have been asking for. 
Yeah. Since the beginning, when are you doing Spy Game? Which is actually kind of crazy when you go into the behind the scenes and the reception of this film, which we'll get to in a second. But for those who aren't too familiar with the film, here is the Letterboxd.com synopsis. Spy Game. It's not how you play the game, it's how the game plays you. On the day of his retirement, a veteran CIA agent learns that his former protégé has been arrested in China and is sentenced to die the next morning in Beijing and that the CIA is considering letting that happen to avoid an international scandal. Yep. That's perfect. That gives you nothing, but it sets you up. That's the kind of synopsis I like. Now, Chris, Mm -hmm. this film inspired your short film, so you've definitely got a history with this. What age did you first catch Spy Game? Well, yeah, I saw it when it came out. Uh, I was 20. Um, so it was just, it was like, I think it was right about November, 2001. I'm trying, I've been trying to remember for ages when exactly was it, but I remember now I've got a funny, weird little story. Um, I was leaving a temping job at the time spy game came out. So I kind of could relate to that. My last day coming up kind of feeling. (laughs) And I think I even got myself a gray jacket on my last day, just as a little nod to the film. Um, my last day was not as exciting as this film, but, uh, yeah, so I saw it in sort of 2001. Um, obviously it was 9-11 was only a few months prior to that. Um, and I remember 9-11 really shaking me. I was in central London the day it happened and it, and, and suddenly the city felt quiet and it was and it was the first time really that you kind of, for me as a 20-year-old, was really like thinking, my goodness, it could be World War Three by the end of the day. It was a very weird day that day. You just didn't know what was going to happen, especially when the... Uh, pentagon was smoking and stuff i really thought this might be it and i'd only just seen dr strange love a few weeks before so that was fresh in my mind as well um so yeah so spy game kind of came out around about sort of november time um and um i i kind of went in with mixed feelings i wasn't sure what to expect from this film because the trailer um even though when watching the trailer again it is quite sort of does give a good feeling of the film i don't know it just felt a bit um bit too upbeat for the mood I was in um, and the film was much more thoughtful than I thought it was because I because I mentioned enemy of the state earlier I was a bit concerned that maybe it might be a bit too much like enemy of the state and I was I was pleased to see that it was a bit more thoughtful than that so I'll, I'll put it like that <laughs> um well what about you Cam I didn't see it in theaters it was one of those rentals I've talked about this in the past where I was working a lot of late shifts and I would go to the Blockbuster right next to my work, and I'd be watching something at you know midnight when I got home from work. And this fell into that category because, I mean, this movie, I'll talk about it in a few minutes, but like it was not a particularly big hit in North America. It was one that, I mean, a lot of people just kind of ignored. So I felt no need to rush out to see it at the time. And I remember watching and enjoying it. Um... I won't. I wouldn't say in general that I'm like the world's biggest Tony Scott fan. It's not that I don't like Tony Scott. It's just like if you ask me my top 25 favorite directors, he's not on the list, and I'm kind of hit or miss with his work. So this was one I liked, but I wasn't like over the moon for. I guess at the time, and I, in classic form, had never seen it. <laughs> classic. <laughs> this podcast is a journey for me. Just I'm seeing films for the first time ever. I I, I like that. I like that. <laughs> I I guess I'm coming to it fresh, to be fair. There was actually a very short-lived TV show called Spy Game that I was, like, really into, and it got cancelled after, like, six or seven episodes, and I was heartbroken. So, (laughs) What's the hook of Spy Game TV show? Yeah, well, it wasn't based on anything to do with this movie. It was starring the guy who played um, Johnny Cage in the Mortal Kombat movie, and it was sort of a almost, like, kind of lighthearted, fun spy show. 
and uh you know it has no legacy whatsoever i don't know why i'm even mentioning it <laughs> strangely when you said it i had like one of those um physical contestant shows in my head oh interesting yeah yeah, yeah. you know like gladiators like spy the spy game right what da, 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 da. yeah was it uh bbc one had a show called spy that's very much like how you uh, picturing it where members of the public were trained to be spies and then tested um and that that was a very interesting show they also had the uh the krypton factor here in the uk which isn't isn't very spy but it's quite an intelligent physical game there was lots of like math questions for everyone so that's kind of where my head went <laughs> um but alas it was none of these things <laughs> um but cam you know we're giving them twice the sex and only half the foreplay so can you tell us how spy games got made yeah, so the movie originated from a script by Michael Frost Beckner, who um, was a writer who'd uh, done the 1993 thriller Sniper, and had also written um, the story for Cutthroat Island, which would become the notorious box office disaster directed by Rennie Harlan and starring Gina Davis. And he'd gotten his career start as a writer's assistant to Barry Levinson on the movie Rain Man. So he had like some decent probably protege mentor training in his past and he put together the story that was Spy Game. And he really didn't do a lot of films after putting together the story for Spy Game in this initial draft. He went on to become a writer producer on shows like The Agency and to Appomattox, a show I've never heard of, but maybe someone out there has. And they decided to bring in another writer, a writer named David Areta. Um, who had written Broke Down Palace, which was the Claire Danes drama, with, also with Kate Beckinsale, in 1999. And he was brought in to do a drastic overhaul. If you look at the credits for Spy Game, he has the screenplay, and uh, Michael Beckner has the story credit. So, heavily rewritten. And um, Arata would go on to write, um, or co-write, I should say, Children of Men. So, he has a very impressive film in his future at this point. Mm. Now, originally, this was not a Tony Scott film. This was a Mike Van Diem film. Of course, the great Mike Van Diem. Who, who, who's Mike Van Diem? <laughs> Excellent question. Now, <laughs> he was developing this story for 18 months. Mike Van Diem, this was going to be his vision project, and he had won an Oscar in 1997 for the best foreign language film, Character, which he'd uh, written and directed. And so he was going to work on this movie. This was going to be his breakthrough. He had Redford and Pitt attached to this movie. Mm. And um, he just, at a certain point, it didn't work out. He ha They had differing visions of the scale and tone of the movie. I think Tony Scott is a very specific tone. And I don't think that this guy was going to be making a similar movie as what wound up being on the screen. Far less uh, Fujifilm circle shots. <laughs> probably. Probably. And I've got a little bit of a uh, trivia note about that as well. And... Um, so basically, there was a bit of a, you know, just split there. It was not in any way, you know, acrimonious. Like, there was a pretty agreeable, like, okay, we just don't agree on this. You move on. And Universal um, actually said they wanted to work with Van Diem, and they would be committed to working with him in the future. He never made an American film. <laughs> so. Oh, man. <laughs> well, it sounds like for Van Diem, it was spy game over. Wow, wow. Wow, wow, <laughs> beautiful yes so um tony scott was brought in in may of 2000 so about you know just about a year and a half before this came out so this wasn't like a project he developed from beginning to end it was very much a bring him in he can assemble this because he's a pro he's made countless films at this point he can kind of wrangle this thing and it is 
when you have like Robert Redford attached, you want kind of a pro to guide it because Redford's a director himself and obviously a long career in the industry. Brad Pitt's newer, so he's made seven. He's made a few things, but he's still not a movie star. But it is notable that um, Robert Redford had directed Brad Pitt in 1992's A River Runs Through It. So they had kind of a mentor-protege relationship, and that was one of Brad Pitt's earliest starring vehicles. So, And he's talked about since how he was so green on that movie, he really didn't know what he was doing, and that Redford was incredibly influential in kind of guiding him, which was kind of appropriate because at the time, people very much looked at Brad Pitt as the next generation's Robert Redford. So I was actually going to ask, it was in my questions to ask you, Cam. You kind of alluded to it. You said he was in seven. Where is Brad Pitt sitting on his like star meter right now? Is he is he a household name at this point? So he's gotten, you know, an Oscar nom for 12 Monkeys. Um, that was a supporting actor for his role in that. And he's sort of at this uncertain period where they all know he's a major talent. He has major charisma on screen. But he was being cast in a lot of, like, star vehicles that weren't working out so great, like Meet Joe Black, um, Seven Years in Tibet, films like that that were kind of these... Oh, The Mexican, that followed, like, I think after this film, didn't it? That was pretty bad. <laughs> I think it opened before this one, like, just by a few months, by, like, just a couple months, yeah. Oh, did it? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I weirdly remember seeing that film. I don't know why I've got a clearer memory of that than seeing Spy Game at the cinema, but there we go. <laughs> You remember the traumatic moments more than the good I ones. think I do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so he's more in like rising star mode. It's like they know he's going to be a star, but they're just looking for that one vehicle to break him through. And he did turn down a movie to make Spy Game. And that movie was The Born Identity. Yeah. So in a different world, maybe that is his launching point. I've got a question about that, but I think I want to come back to it later after he's working about the film. So please continue. Yeah, uh, and just a couple other notes. There's actually not a ton of production detail on Spy Game Online. It's not a movie that anyone's written the definitive blog entry on the making of Spy Game or anything like that. Uh, but a couple of notes I've got. It was originally scheduled to shoot in Israel, but due to Israel-Palestine conflicts, they relocated it to Morocco. And also the helicopter shot that you mentioned earlier. Um, that was something that Tony Scott insisted the studio was not willing to pay for, so he paid for it himself. And it was worth it, I think. <laughs> no, I, I would agree. And this is probably yeah. a good moment to talk about uh, our interview this weekend. Tune back in on Friday this week. We have the cinematographer himself, Dan Mindell, award-winning cinematographer. He's done things like Force Awakens, Star Trek 2009, uh, Spy Game, of course, Mission Impossible 3, some J.J. Abrams projects there. Done a lot of Tony Scott films. He's worked on Enemy of the State as well. So, yeah, that'll be... And Domino, actually. So there's going to be a really interesting talk, I think, about just the evolution of Tony Scott's style. And he's got a lot of spy connections. So, you know, it looks to be a great interview. So make sure you check in on Friday. Yeah. So that helicopter shot, which is set when the, in the movie's in Berlin, um, apparently Robert Redford was baffled by why they were doing this. Mm. He was like, this is an intimate conversation. Why do we have a helicopter <laughs> swooping around me? But he said when he watched the finished film, he understood. Yeah. So, yeah. well, one interesting thing about that, I was thinking about that scene um, because it is a very uh, flashy moment. Um, 
And it's like, because I was thinking, well, they've had conversations in bars, they've had them in cars, they've had them all over the place. They kind of run out of places to have like powerful conversations. And so the rooftop kind of works and it might be a little bit over the top, but it kind of works for that scene. Um, I think it was actually a good choice in the end, even though it's a bit like, oh my God. <laughs> I don't I don't want to get into necessarily too much of the review at this point, but I, to speak to that scene, something I sort of considered, especially when I watched it the second time, is they had lots of conversations, as you say, in sort of confined quarters, cafes, bars, restaurants. This is a outside conversation. And so I think going with the helicopter kind of gave it feel like everyone's looking in and they're very mm. exposed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a private yeah, that's conversation how I took public it. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the budget was $115 million. Domestically, it did 62.4. International, 80.7 for a worldwide total of 143.1. So this was kind of a break-even affair, really, for Alternate Universal, title not film. something that was a home run. <laughs> breaking even. <laughs> yeah. The breaking even affair. <laughs> yeah, that's, a... <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that might be the title of my next film. <laughs> <laughs> I want a credit on that. <laughs> it landed at number 31 on the worldwide box office, right between Swordfish and Legally Blonde. <laughs> I definitely saw uh, Swordfish and Legally Blonde the year they came out. I did not see this. Yeah, I saw them both as well. Yeah, I saw Swordfish. I only saw Legally Blonde about 10 years ago. I actually really enjoyed it. But Yeah, yeah it's fun. Okay, and uh, the top three for this year. Number one was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone, depending on where you live. Number two was Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And number three was Monsters, Inc. See, this is what I wanted to talk about with the box office, because you and I, Cam, were talking off air about it having kind of a frosty reception. And obviously the audience didn't necessarily turn up for this film either. Yeah. Which is why I have this weird thing about People have contacted us several times to review this film, mm. but it doesn't seem to be many fans of this film. Wow. I've, yeah. Not at the time. I mean, you think about it, this movie's opening in sort of that Christmas Oscar y kind of season. It's going up against Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. These are way noisier movies. Um, so I think that's an element of it. Uh, also, opening this movie a couple months after 9 11. Uh, did did people want to watch this? No, it was looked probably too serious for what they would want to be watching at the movies. You know, just for a night out, basically. So I I would suspect all these things kind of added on, and it was not reviewed particularly well. I actually have a review quote that just made me laugh from uh, your side of the pond. This is from Peter Bradshaw from the Guardian. Oh, not Peter Bradshaw. <laughs> Hard to please, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> He says, this quote, just made, normally I don't read out reviews, but it made me laugh so hard when I read it. He wrote, what a boring actor Robert Redford is. The 64-year-old director superstar has acquired in front of the camera none of the presence of Paul Newman and has moreover jettisoned the laconic wit of his young performances, choosing only old bimbo roles. He is a black hole in this movie, a stately inert figure bringing nothing whatsoever to his relationship with Brad Pitt other than a chilling reminder of what's in store for Pitt's gorgeous chops. Now, Peter Bradshaw really likes Spectre. I think he gave it five stars. <laughs> so, honestly... There man, you have it. The guy has no taste, clearly. No, no taste whatsoever. No, I bet he no. liked Ipcris File as well. He probably did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the Chinese knockoff version of it. <laughs> Which I'm totally making up. Um, one quick thought I had about box office, if you don't mind me putting that in. Um, no, jump in. Yeah. So it's not a rah-rah patriotic film, 
um you know it takes a very um and we'll go into this maybe a bit more in a bit but it sort of takes quite a cynical look at how the cia operate and i think a more realistic view of how the cia cia operate and i think had this film come out maybe in 1999 around when three kings came out it'd probably be more successful um and also i think reason as a fan base is just i think dvds i think it did well on dvd and i think it's like with ronin in your earlier episode um you know ronin didn't do very well in the box office but it sort of took a life of its own off on dvd so um i think my first ever dvd i owned actually was ronin um and in spy game i was gifted it's the film i've been gifted so many times actually i've been i've got two vhs's of it and then a dvd and i'm about to get a blu-ray of it but <laughs> it's like a family thing like oh yeah he likes spy stuff right oh let's get them a spy video i don't know spy game sure whatever <laughs> yeah that's how it uh, works <laughs> well, and i think also talking to your point and, and maybe people just didn't want and i suppose bouncing off what someone said earlier as well people didn't want that serious type of story right after 9-11 no no and also one that perhaps wasn't very um nice about the CIA, like they kind of wanted more of the rah rah, let's go USA stories uh, at the time. Because I don't even know if they wanted anything real world. I think that may have been an aspect of it as well. Like Lord of the Rings became a big deal for that sort of post 9 11 movie going attitude of like sort of this communal spirit and people bonding together for a shared goal. Like it, at least over on this side, like Lord of the Rings really became sort of the movies of that moment. I think also, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of talk about the suicide bombing scene in the film. And I think even it might have been delayed after 9-11 because Robert Redford's other film, I think, called The Last Castle, which I've still not seen, that was delayed after 9-11. I even remember um, one of the photos of 9-11. You can see the Last Castle poster in the background of one of the shots of like the Twin Towers smoking. So that's terrible, you know, for a moment there. Um so I think, yeah, I just think people were not in the mood for that kind of film um, at that time, and especially that conversation about the suicide bombing and stuff. So, yeah. And yeah, just my final note on the movie was that it was dedicated to uh, Tony Scott's mom who'd passed away. And actually Ridley Scott, his brother, dedicated uh, Black Hawk Down that same year to her as well. Well, gents, gee, I'm hungry for us to talk about <laughs> this film. So, um, Chris, you're our guest. Guests always go first. Obviously, you loved it when you saw it originally. It inspired you know to get into making films. You made a film kind of about this whole connective tissue here. What do you think of Spy Game in 2022? Yeah, um, I think it still holds up. I, I think it's a solid sort of 90s feeling film. Um, it has its it has some tropes in terms of the visual style that maybe are very much of their time, speed ramping being one of them. Um, hmm. But I would say it's a good flashy take on CIA history and and the CIA workings through the late 20th century. Um, I find it immensely watchable. I've watched it way too many times. It's a bit like The Fugitive. It's one of these films I could just watch it endlessly and still enjoy it. Um, I really enjoy The Fugitive as well. Um, and um, yeah, it's just something about Spy Game. It's like if I'm in the mood for a, a film about espionage, but it's not going to depress me, Spy Game works. Because if you compare it to the spy that came in the cold, in from the cold, which I would say is a superior spy film in many ways, but it's a damn depressing bleak film. While Spy Game, if I'm just in that espionage mood and I don't want to watch something stupid, like, uh, well, I won't name one, but there, there are many stupid spy films out there which I'd rather not watch. 
this film just sort of ticks the box and um you know so I, I think it works well and it also one other cool thing about it it kind of goes from quite three very distinct periods of the cia which is the vietnam war uh you got berlin uh, being the kind of cold war and then obviously the middle east of the early 80s um and it's also pretty accurate in terms of techniques used by cia officers and how what options nathan muir might have to pull off a, a rescue mission if you were going to do so um so yeah so i think it's kind of it's sort of enjoyable and it's um you know and it's got a a nice theme about the human cost of espionage versus sort of geopolitics and so it's it's just not it's not a throwaway film even though it's packaged a bit as a throwaway film and maybe some people might um think of it as a throwaway film there's a lot to it that um works really well and in fact there's a lot of great humor in the film too there's a lot of lines in there that are very quotable um so yeah and and, and as you're doing right now you know through the through the podcast <laughs> half of my notes are just one lines from the film i just uh, find good times to drop them <laughs> yeah i find i have to disagree with a lot of your points there chris um you know there's a lot to like with this film uh, what about you cam what do you think yeah, I enjoyed going back to it. It's interesting because in recent years, Tony Scott's had much more of a reappraisal. The critical community has really started to re-examine Tony Scott because for a long time, he was just viewed as the lesser Scott. Ridley Scott was the A-list guy. He was the one making the great films. And uh, <laughs> no, actually, you're right. Uh, Scott, co-host of this podcast, is the, the least <laughs> Scott. But <laughs> That's been proven by our other Scott guests that were far better than I. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Tony Scott was, for much of his career, kind of critically derided. People would often just kind of dismiss his movies and be like, oh, it's another stupid Tony Scott film. Whereas Ridley, it was like, roll out the red carpet because here's the latest prestige film from Ridley Scott or the, the latest visionary work a la Blade Runner or Alien. And like, in recent years, you've seen people start to look a lot closer at what Tony Scott mm -hmm. was doing, how he informed so much of the action filmmaking that would continue onwards you know people like Michael Bay and all the sort of ilk that would follow in his wake and it's interesting in that I've noticed the noisiest reappraisal has been behind the movie Unstoppable his runaway train movie which I think was his final film I think it was yeah yeah, yeah. that's the one I'm hearing the most reappraisal of but Spy Game is another one that I hear brought up and what I really enjoyed about this movie was you know um, Chris you touch on it but like the the various locales we go to at these very important points in history. I found that aspect really mm. just sucked me in and the differences in the mm. cinematography and how he just grounds you in these times and places. And everything to do with the mentor-protege relationship between Redford and Brad Pitt, I loved. Every bit of training, every bit of information going on between the two. And just in terms of an overall hook for a story, it's pretty damn good. The way it sets it up with Brad Pitt as this you know, protege being captured and how, you know, Redford has to basically science his way out of it, has to essentially come up with all this spy craft to find a way to get him out of there, I thought was really clever. I think where I kind of struggle at parts, and we'll, you know, dive deeper into this as we go, but I think maybe in terms of like the love interest in, uh, relationship with Brad Pitt, it doesn't have the hook I quite need to hinge on it. And another thing was, and I don't know that I would have said this, before we started this podcast, Scott, we watched a movie called No Way Out with Kevin Costner not too long ago, which in some ways is very similar to this. And there's a lot of scenes of um, of uh, Robert Redford kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with his colleagues, trying to outsmart them, trying to get one step ahead to free Brad Pitt. And I felt like in this movie, 
he was punching down with these guys throughout. Whereas I felt like Kevin Costner, there was much more of a sense of tension and threat because it felt like it was very smart people investigating him versus here where it's Robert Redford just being a genius and everyone just kind of looking like <laughs> as he, you know, out, you know, thinks them time and time again. So I guess overall, I'm like positive on the movie. I really enjoyed it. It's, believe me, a completely painless rewatch. I could happily sit down and watch Spy Game again. But I think there are elements that maybe hold it back from being, you know, capital G great in my eyes. It's interesting you you contrasted it with No Way Out. I hadn't made that connection until you had said that. But you're right in a sense, you know, No Way Out has a sense of the walls closing in on Kevin Costner as the, as the film continues until you get that the climax at the end and then that, you know, strange twist, which I wasn't a fan of at the time. I'm still not a big fan of. No. But whereas in this film, Robert Redford, it's just like he's playing with his food. You know, he he really is like shooting fish in a barrel. That's as many analogies as I can come up with. But, mm. you know, uh, I think that is a shame, actually. That is kind of a wasted opportunity when you've got Robert Redford in your film. You could have some fun with him being a, a man that's under pressure. You look at Three Days of the Condor. Now that was 20 odd years earlier. Yeah, well, it's 1975. So it's like 26 years earlier. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I'm not asking him to go ride around New York City on a bicycle. <laughs> But there could have been some more of that sort of tension and, and movement in the film. I suppose for me, it's my first time watching it, so I haven't really got the sort of, I don't know, the nostalgia built into it, perhaps. I, I Overall, I did like this film. I think it's it's charming. It's tense at times. I think Robert Redford is a leading man, and he'll never not be a leading man. He's fantastic, and every scene with him in is fun to watch. He he's just chewing the scenery especially in those boardroom scenes and how tony scott gets that to work in the film as i mentioned earlier boardroom scenes with men can be very boring and <laughs> yes they can and they're bloody hard to shoot and make to be honest I, I don't know. some people some people nail it some people really fail it and i i think tony scott has got it i think for me where the film falls down and i wrote this as like my second note my first note uh in my review, actually, was uh, at Brad Pitt's electrocution slash electrifying dying. I wrote shocking, positively shocking, <laughs> which, which I quite enjoyed. <laughs> but in terms of what I was writing my review afterwards, I wrote stylish, but lacking substance. Yeah, yeah. It It's a visual feast of a film. It looks great. All these cuts and cinematography. I'm glad we're talking to Dan later this week. I think he's a perfect man to interview about this film. But when we dig a little deeper into the film and you question things about the plot, it all starts to crumble away. I'm still not entirely sure if I buy Brad Pitt's love story, mm. how they got connected. I don't really get that. And I mean, just to, just to wrap me up before we sort of start dissecting a bit more, much like both of yourselves, I definitely enjoyed the film. I think if someone put it on, I would watch it again. I wouldn't be adverse to watching it, but I don't think... I would be going into it again to get anything out of it. It would be more just a purely fun watch. I was reminded of, you know, the movie The Usual Suspects at the end of this movie, which, you know, Brian Singer, not a director we love to talk about these days, but, you know, Usual Suspects was a big deal where you have kind of like a big moment where kind of like the curtains fall down, Chaz Palminteri's dropping his mug. And I feel like that's kind of what this movie was going for at the end with the reveal of, wait a second, he didn't have all those wives and everything, but it was kind of like... I don't know that it had the structure to pay off that sort of dropping the curtains kind of moment. And I think why the movie works ultimately is because it doesn't depend on it. 
But I would have loved that kind of like knockout, like, oh my God, Robert Redford, like what a wizard at the end of this movie. Well, it tries to ramp up the stakes because they're slowly unpicking how he has lied to them as he's leaving the building on his final day of work. You know, hashtag, I'm too old for this shit. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote that down very early on. But you know he's gone. You know there is no tension. Of course, Robert Redford is going to drive off into the sun in his Porsche 911. Of course he is. They're not going to arrest him. He gets away with it. And so I never felt on either watch the tension of them stopping him leaving. Mm. Um, but I, I suppose let's not talk about the bad stuff yet. It's good stuff time. Likes. So, Chris, this is a very influential film for you. Give me something you like about it. Yeah, well, I think it's an incredibly well-researched script. So in terms of the workings of espionage and spycraft, um, I think most of that is down to Michael Frost-Beckner. Um, I think the other writer probably made it more fun um i could be wrong but um you know he also created that tv show the agency as well which lasted for two seasons and had direct help from the cia um so there's a lot of realism um, underscoring sort of how the characters work and how intelligence officers sort of seek out to achieve their objectives and they do it through other people and you know a lesser film robert redford would have got his guns and flown out to china himself and got bishop out you know that would that's a typical spy movie um, and this film is not that. And that's what I really appreciate about it. I think, you know, as I was saying, um, I think Redford's performance is the thing that definitely sells this film and does as does the cinematography, um, you know. And I think he's also one of the best looking CIA sets I've seen in the movie as well. Because, um, I, I, you know, as a filmmaker myself, think about like, why is it some... C- I was watching um, uh, The Looming Tower not long ago. And like their CIA offices just look so bare. I was trying to work out what the hell has happened, you know. Um, and and so there's a lot of things about the art direction I think are really good. I love the humor in the film. Um, there's a lot of really nice little payoffs. Like there's this line um, where Redford's sort of talking about uh, Bishop's cover when he's in Beirut, and he's like, uh, and he says, he's, yeah, he says he's a photo, he's a down as a photojournalist and he's got a good eye and suddenly cut to him like running for cover whilst taking photographs and not looking through the camera at all um i love those little moments and and the whole um when redford is talking to gladys um she's asking are you being, feeling a little paranoid in your last day uh, as he's talking about using a burn bag for the first time and he says gladys when did noah build the ark before the rain before the rain and i, I love that although there's so many quotable lines in this film um and it just keeps it fun um, whilst it is dealing with a sort of serious topic, because it's very easy with these kind of films to get very po-faced and depressing, because mm-hmm. um, we, we, yeah, we're talking about manipulation of other people for political aims, so it's, it, it, it could easily get caught up in the, the weeds of that, um, or it could go down the other way of being ridiculously Arnold Schwarzeneggery and he just takes out people with you know shots from the hip and stuff. So, yeah, and there's so many vivid characters too, like Harry Duncan, David Hemmings, who, who seems to be just saying, "Oh, you out of your effing mind!" Like every five minutes. Um, but I love Harry Duncan, and um, and you've got Andy Unger in the uh, no, sorry, Kepler in the map office. There's that scene where Redford goes into the map office to kind of get. Um, you know, information. He kind of basically appeals to Kepler's sense of sort of pride and and his ego a little bit. And then at the end, he kind of creates a little cover story about his uh, his office party, his leaving party. And then the second he leaves, he calls up his secretary, and says, um, "Yeah, can you call up Kepler and just uh, tell him my party's been cancelled?" All that little stuff is just great. And there's so many little details like that. And I think maybe because um, I've watched it so many times, the more details he starts to pick up, um, 
but there are some really good little nuggets in there and i think it's a very well um overall very well written film um and and for what it is and i think you know we were saying earlier about like um if another director had taken that film is a very because you're dealing with two timelines the structure of this film is incredibly tight and it's very accessible so because it's very easy because I, yeah. I love films about memory and it's very easy to get that wrong um you know or make it very difficult to understand and some recent films by christopher nolan might be a good case in point here or like tenet or even dunkirk they almost become a bit indecipherable um, unless you have some sort of visual cues that really help the audience keep up because it, it can be very difficult. And I, I love films about memory um, and I love Christopher Nolan's work, but even his films, those more recent ones, I find almost harder to keep up with. So so I think they structured it incredibly well for what it is. Well, it's um, a couple of things just from what you said there, Chris. I mean, firstly, whilst I know you appreciate the office look in this it will never compare to the OSS buildings in the Spy Kids films because there's, that's the place I really, really want to work. That, uh, it's, a, it's a nightmare, yeah. but a fun nightmare. <laughs> you mentioned the photojournalist very briefly when you were talking oh, yeah, about yeah. there. And um, it's actually funny. One of our listeners who wanted to remain anonymous just because it's kind of their work. Um, Deep cover, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Spies here. It's all spies. Um <laughs> is actually influenced by this film to become a photojournalist from seeing this film. So it had a real world effect on people. And uh, it must mean that the the portrayal of the photojournalist that Brad Pitt does is actually quite accurate or perhaps romantic. And that's why they did it. But, you know, shout out to them. Uh, They're doing a great thing. But um, finally, you spoke about the fun bits, fun lines, fun moments in the film. And me and Cam talk about this a lot with spy films. Mm. There's some that you could passively watch. More maybe the James Bonds of the world, the funnier ones. Mm. And then there's some you really have to pay attention to, the funeral in Berlin's. Now, this is a very stylish film, but if you do pay attention, there are good details to look out for. And this is one of those weird hybrids that I think really walks that line. Yeah, like I think when we're talking about a movie like Zero Dark Thirty, that really, you know, is trying to be almost like documentary kind of feel to the movie it's only going to be accessible to X amount of people. Like, not a lot of people are going to sit and watch Zero Dark Thirty. But whereas, like, a movie like this, I really like how it grounds it in a real-world setting. It's constantly trying to bring in real-world CII spycraft. But it's making it accessible to an audience. And even as, you know, you said, Chris, bouncing around to these various you know, points in time and locations, the way that they make that accessible to an audience Mm. visually just by the changes in the cinematography, but also just like they make it kind of feel like an encapsulation of these moments, you know, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's, you know, the Cold War. It's like these little scenarios that just feel like an encapsulation of all the kind of stories you've heard from this kind of time period, I think is very clever because it doesn't feel like you'd ever get lost. And I think a movie like this where you are bouncing around like this, and also working in all this kind of CIA double talk, it would be very easy to make maybe a good movie, but one that a general audience would sit there and kind of scratch their heads and be like, I, I don't really know. This isn't what I want to spend my date night out watching or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spy Geeks would love that. Um, but it, it's hard to make it work for a lot of people. It's it's difficult. And that's that, I think that's the challenge of making spy films, to be honest with you, is how to keep these sort of quite loaded conversations um short but effective and because that's one of my problems is like you know i've got scripts that run for pages and it's like god i've got to get this down to like 
two pages or less, you know. Um, and that's damn hard. It's damn hard. It really is. It really is. It's it's a it's a fine art. Mm. Have you seen the movie Operation Crossbow? I don't think I have actually. I think I, I remember you mentioning it because isn't it quite painful to watch? It's like because it's got the one with um, Hannibal from the A Team in it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, George Papart. Well, <laughs> like in terms of kind of the men on a mission stuff, it's really fun. But in terms of the men sitting around at a table talking, it's unbelievable. Everything just drags to a standstill. Yeah, yeah. Guns of Navarone's a bit like that as well. I was trying to rewatch that not long ago and kind of gave up. <laughs> it was like, I thought I was in the mood for this film. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I did not think we'd have an Operation Crossbow mention on this episode. But I'm, I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. <laughs> Cam, what about you? Something you like? Um, the mentor and protege relationship of Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. Like, I could just sit and watch these two talk about spycraft for, like, a whole movie. I don't even care about any of the conspiracy or any of the kidnappings or action of this movie. I could just watch Robert Redford walk Brad Pitt through this world, you know, for a three-hour movie because I just found every chance they took, this stuff was so compelling. The two stars have so much, you know, like, just such a strong dynamic between them. And... Just little bits like walk into that, you know, apartment and find yourself on the balcony or just the way that Redford very much pragmatically lays out the realities of the job and how, you know what, mm. you've got to just drop the asset. The asset ultimately doesn't matter in terms of, you know, your life. You need to make it out of there. And it has that sort of cynical, cold look. But I think because it's Robert Redford, we're, we're kind of on board. Like we go, OK, cool. Like Robert Redford is a guy who when he speaks on screen, you listen. You just instantly, you know, I don't agree with uh, old Peter Bradshaw. <laughs> I didn't, I yeah. didn't think that uh, Robert Redford was an old bimbo in this movie. I would lean forward when he spoke because he has so much authority that I go, okay, he has that kind of world weary feel, a feel where I'm just like, tell me more, Robert Redford. And so, as you know, a guy guiding you through this movie and guiding a character like Brad Pitt, I just, I mean, that's your best special effect in the movie. Yeah, well, I see the intelligence officers that I've spoken to. They're all very personable. And Robert Redford's bang on with that. So it's really good casting in that regard. Because if they're like, I don't know, just boring and schlubby, you're not going to recruit anybody to do anything. And they've got to be really larger than life people. And that's the interesting thing I've learned about intelligence officers. A lot of them are very, very much larger than life, more than you would even expect sometimes. It's like, wow, <laughs> you're a spy, crikey. <laughs> and I like that we got to see him, you know, in the field, in all these scenes with Brad Pitt, but then also just like at a party or in the office. So you get a sense of just his his demeanor in just every aspect of his life. Yeah, for me, Robert Redford has this well-earned gravitas. Like, he walks on the screen, you pay attention. And he has this um, sort of familial feeling with the audience. Like, you're in on it with him and you're coming mm. along for the ride. And he's like, I, I, I'm sure in the 70, in 75, Three Days of the Condor, he wasn't like your dad. He was like your brother. But now he's like your dad and he's kind of taking care of you throughout the film. And you're looking to him as sort of that fatherly figure to carry you through the story and also carry Brad Pitt's uh, and train him in the tradecraft, Cam. You didn't say tradecraft enough times in your point there. Um, I said spycraft. Uh, this, this film has like a trademark on the word tradecraft, I think. But um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed every moment with Redford. I think it, I said it earlier, like I think it's a shame maybe he wasn't put under more pressure. Mm. But I just don't think the script called for it. So I don't really blame directors or anything like that. I think that's just what was written down and I think he delivered. I think it's really notable too that you had The Rock, which paired Nicolas Cage 
and Sean Connery with Sean Connery playing a you know kind of a kind of James Bond more or less and then Tony Scott jumps in and for Bruckheimer does Enemy of the State where you have Gene Hackman coming back playing basically his character from the conversation paired up with another young rising star and now you've got Tony Scott jumping over here and you've got Robert Redford kind of playing his three days of the Condor character with another rising star in Brad Pitt so this was very much a trend Mm. at this point in time and they never really went wrong with it. It's something maybe they should revisit in movies now because I, between those three, whether you, you know, hold them as all-timers, whatever, but, like, they're pretty effective all three movies. Like, they are enjoyable. None of them are, none of them are duds at all. No. No. I, mean, I, I would, of course, lobby for this because I want to see Pierce Brosnan back as Bond. Oh, yeah. I, do you know what? There's a great, cool, older Bond story they could do with Pierce Brosnan as a kind of placeholder until they figure out what they're doing with the franchise because I feel poor old Pierce got a bit shafted at the end, didn't he? Bless him. It's, it's such an easy thing to write, I think. you know, It's just him slightly aging out, kind of like Connery and Never Say Never Again. They make a few jokes about his age in that film, too. But, you know, he saves the day one last time, gets to go and rides up into the sunset and doesn't get blown up by missiles. Yeah, and you can do the Goldeneye trailer again. Were you expecting someone else? Oh, <laughs> oh chills, chills. Oh, man. I'll, I'll do it. Make <laughs> it happen. Let's, Give me let's, the budget. Let's, it. Yeah, let's crowdfund it. You can direct. It's great. Me and Cam get yeah. writing credits. Perfect. Oh, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're the new Wade and Purvis. Hardy and Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I think you guys have covered a lot of the things I have for like. So I'm going to shout out the team of Tony Scott, Dan Mindell, and Christian Wagner, who was the editor for the film, they create some really interesting sequences. You talk about the the sniping assassination at the beginning with Brad Pitt, just the tension there as they're getting, and you think they're going to get left behind, they get caught, they get shot at. And you don't expect this sort of action sequence at the beginning of the film. It seems rather, well, like a low-key affair. You know, the guy gets electrocuted, he dies, and then there's some men in rooms. And then you have this whole sequence in Vietnam, there's a helicopter people being shot at, it's very intense. And then later on in the film, yeah, we mentioned the Fujifilm shot at the top. Fantastic stuff. And then also I, I like to talk about the, the lead up to the bombing of the Sheik. That whole countdown of trying to get the doctor there. Plus there's like, is it the Libyans, I believe, or the Lebanese? Lebanese militia, yeah. Lebanese, Lebanese. militia, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, Libya. And um, going to blow up the Sheik. And that tension just created on screen, I think, is some of the finest moments in the film. I, I did kind of snicker, though, when it showed the shot of Brad Pitt, like, vaulting over the rooftops next to the events that were going on. That kind of made me laugh. But, yeah, like, that whole sequence is really effective at building, you know, tension. We didn't know how lucky we were in this era to have what would essentially be kind of these meat and potatoes action movies being made by people like Tony Scott. Like, these movies mm. look fantastic and have a very distinct visual stamp. And you just do not have that as much anymore. You know, you've kind of got the marvelification of movies where everything's kind of shot to have this kind of somewhat bland, plain look. And a movie like this, maybe the storytelling isn't doing anything particularly innovative, but just because of the energy and the vibe and just the feel of what Tony Scott's creating with the cinematographer and all of his various technical departments... It really does feel unique when you watch it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of strength in those episodes. They all have a very distinctive look, which makes them very easy to know where you are. 
and um, other films, like there was a film called Rush many years ago, a Formula One film, and I, and I think it failed. It was all mainly shot in the UK, but it was set in other countries. And the cinematography made no effort to try and make each uh, country distinctive. So everywhere looked like it was just on the same racetrack, which I think it was, and it, and it really failed in that department. But um, Spy Game really, I think, did an excellent job on the cinematography and keeping a sense of place. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents. We have some breaking intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, these all add up. And we don't have Vesper Lind to bail us out. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. Leave the shopping to Harry Palmer, we say. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hards Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam? Resume the spy jinx. Well, I think, you know, we've covered a lot of the good stuff about the film. Let's maybe dig into some of the bad bits, some of the things that could be improved upon. So, Chris, I know you love this film, so there's no notes from you, I assume. <laughs> well, oh, there's a couple of scenes here and there. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of Brad Pitt throwing his chair off the roof. It feels a bit over the top. Um, it was just like the, the poor cars down below, like some guys just driving to the supermarket to get his kids some bread. Yeah, yeah. I put on my health and safety hat from anything. How the hell, you know, they must have had to close off down the road, and you know, his chair's about to come off, and you know, coordinating a chair being lobbed off a building. But um, yeah, it just felt a bit over the top that. But I actually think that my main note. So there's just some moments of Brad Pitt's not as convincing as he could be. Like there's that scene in Beirut where he's um, talking to the doctor, and the doctor says, "What's it like to kill a man?" Um, you know, is it hard to take a life? And it's just something about Brad Pitt in that moment. I just didn't feel the truth under what he was saying. Um, I know he's got to reassure the guy and be quite upbeat and smiley. And, uh, you know, it's the, you know, he's sort of like got to smile and say, no, it is terrible. But I don't know that there was just something missing. And I don't know whether that scene was rushed. Um, I don't know. There's just, I felt like if I was directing that, I would want a few more takes of that, you know, maybe get a fish and slap it in Brad Pitt's face right now. Now do it, you know, I'm joking. <laughs> but um, you know what I mean? It's just, there's something missing in that. And I, I agree the romance, um, it's, you know, it, it, it sort of works as a narrative. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I felt like we needed more time. I felt that a little bit actually in Casino Royale. I could have done a few more scenes of Bond and Vespa to really buy it. Um, so this film, I think, could have done with a few more scenes of that. And again, um, the you know, the, the rescue at the end, it feels so rushed. Yeah. It's like, I, I would have liked a bit more of a, maybe not go full Zero Dark Thirty, because that would have been like, like half an hour later, Brad Pitt gets out. But maybe just a bit more tension just a few more minutes of the will he get out will he not because it's just sort of it's just sort of like special forces go in pull him out boom, 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 and it's done um and i feel like it could have just if that seems just two or three minutes where it was a bit tense we could have we could have done with that it would have worked it you know it's very blink and you'll miss it the extraction i the first time i watched it i admittedly like my attention was starting to to waver slightly at the end just because it's hitting the two hour mark and that's where i start to get a bit antsy and I, I think I wasn't paying attention for a second. I look up and I was like, did they save the girl as well? And then it took a minute for them to get into the helicopter. I was like, oh, she's there. But there is a shot of them going in and rescuing Elizabeth Hadley. But it is very blink and you'll miss it. 
And it feels like that's like one of the payoffs for the film. It should have been giving a, a couple more minutes just to, I mean, if it is for tension or just for payoff, either way, I, it could have been paid a little bit more attention, but maybe that's a budgetary thing. Yeah, I think also in editing, they're probably a bit worried that it was too much of the film was not going to be featuring Brad Pitt or Robert Redford. You have these weird discussions like, well, our protagonists, where have they gone? You know, uh, and people worry about that a bit too much sometimes. I still think we like Zero Dark Thirty proved it. Suddenly got a whole new film at the end for 30 minutes. These whole new characters we've never met before. Um, and it could have easily been, you know, they could have had Tran, the, the guy who helps Brad Pitt in Vietnam, who's also there in China. He could have been one of the Special Forces guys and it would have worked. Um, they, they, could, they could have done it, but I think somewhere, somewhere somewhere in the editing producer uh, kind of conversations or running time might be running time too. like shit uh, tony it's uh, this film's already three hours you've got to cut out loads of stuff you know uh, you know it's like my theory on the miami vice film um the director's cut versus the studio cut they cut out literally the first five minutes of the film and it's like i wonder if michael mann just went you know what fuck it <laughs> cut there it's five minutes <laughs> gone you know um so i don't know <laughs> Well, I you know, and you mentioned the the love story, which I had a problem with when I, I in my part in the beginning. Uh, there was another note on IMDb that said Tony Scott did want to do more scenes of them sort of getting to know each other, but it was a budgetary and time constraint that that held yeah. them back. And so, these things do happen in cinema. And I suppose we're nitpicking a film that most of us did enjoy. But you know, Cam, any notes from you? Well, I want to just note too, like Tony Scott was very much a studio guy. So, like, he's someone who worked within the studio system his whole life, so I think was very agreeable and would play nice with studios. Whereas, like, maybe a different director would have fought real hard for that love interest. Whereas, I think Tony Scott was very, kind of like Robert Redford, very pragmatic, going, okay, we can't make it work, no problem, I'm going to make the best movie I can. And I think that really speaks to, you know, the strength of his general output, because he really does deliver every time. But, yeah, the romance for me, like, Catherine McCormack is like fine in the movie she has a scene going toe to toe with robert redford where i was like sitting up i'm like oh i love this where it's the two of them at like a restaurant battling back and forth while brad pitt looks really awkward that sequence is great so it's not like she can't bring something to the movie it's just like the movie kind of underwrites that relationship with brad pitt and i don't know what's going on there because i think brad pitt could have pulled it off it just felt like they didn't want to spare the minutes Mm. to kind of establish the relationship a little more it just became more of the relationship in quotes it became the issue they had to deal with and ultimately kind of to put her in a position to be something that brad pitt would pursue and something we wouldn't question like if it was i don't know say an asset was kidnapped and brad pitt was going in you'd be like well really is that that important like can't brad pitt let this at uh, asset go i mean come on be pragmatic here but if it's a relationship, if it's a romance, we go, mm. I buy it. I understand why he's doing this 100%, and I will never question this throughout the two hours. I just wish they'd given me a little bit more there to really invest in emotionally. Because I don't know that this is a movie that I have any emotional connection to, really, at the end of it. Other than maybe just kind of really being into the relationship between Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. But even that has a little bit of... I don't want to say a chilliness because there's a lot of spy movies we would call chilly. A lot. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is very chilly. But it's just a little bit emotionally removed than maybe a different movie would have been. I think this connects to the, the lack of substance I mentioned earlier on. Uh, and I think it's a shame. But I, I let's just say that was down to time. And I can completely understand that being a problem. My One of my two issues I wanted to bring up, the first one connects quite well. And that was, I, I feel like a lot of people's motivations were very murky. 
I don't that's understand. The CIA, Scott. That's the CIA. <laughs> okay. I, I, <laughs> Can't trust anybody, man. <laughs> I, I knew you both were going to throw this back at me, and I, and I already have my answer planned. Yeah. Can you tell me why Stephen Delane's character of Charles Harker was so interested in bringing down both Robert Redford and Brad Pitt? Career. Careerism. Is that it? He's, he's just a bit of a jag. I think also it's also in that early moment in the you remember that early bit in the office as well, where they first meet Robert Redford and him, and it's all about you know if these walls could talk. He's just he's that nineties era um, CIA management because I, I don't know if you know this, but um, there was a mass cull at the CIA in the nineties um, when Bill Clinton came in. Um, and suddenly, like a lot of people got fired and things like that, and the CIA was trying to change, clean up its act and do things differently. And I, and I think Harker is just that kind of character. I could, you know, the film could have made more of an effort to maybe make that clear, but that's what I think his character's motivation is. And also, like the Redford character, we see him throughout the movie in all these locations Beirut and, you know, Vietnam, all these places. Whereas, like, I don't have the vibe that the Charles Harker character has that sort of background. Like, that's kind of the wisdom of Robert Redford's character is that he kind of, he knows the game. He's been there. He's, you know, had his feet in the mud basically throughout. Whereas, like, this guy feels more like a micromanager in an office. Like, that's kind of the conflict. I And I can draw that out from you know, reading about it afterwards. I just feel like there might have been a line or two that could have given you some sort of motivation for yeah. why he's oh, trying yeah, to bring yeah. the guy down. And I'll, and I'll then point fingers at Brad Pitt. Now, you can say the love story is why he did that, but why he gave up his career. I I don't understand someone who would make that much of a jump to put themselves to, to potentially sacrifice not only his own life, but his colleagues' lives just for a piece of action. Yeah. <laughs> well, I... I have a question for Chris. Do you think Brad Pitt is supposed to be portrayed as being a good spy here? No, he he's very much, um, you know, he's the guy who wanted, well, Robert Redford puts it almost in the description of him. He's the guy who wanted to see what he's made of and didn't like what he saw. And um, that's kind of it. And I think he feels guilty uh, because um, I think he figures out Muir's behind her kidnapping. Obviously, they don't make a thing about the film. You have to deduce that yourself kind of thing. But I think he feels guilty as well as love. And on top of that, the human carnage he witnesses where he then parts way with Redford after the bombing. That's his moment. That's his like, geez, man, this is terrible. And and I think when he figures out where she went, because I'm assuming he did his spycraft investigation to figure out where, where the hell she is and finds out that she's in China and then puts two and two together, I think that's more the motivation. But again, I'm drawing that in. It, the film doesn't make that as clear as it could do. And I think like when you see scenes like during the Cold War section where Brad Pitt is driving with the asset and has to leave him behind, it keeps kind of underlining the brad pitt character has a lot more humanity and a lot more of that emotional connection to things that like redford does not i don't know if he ever did but if he did it was beaten well out of him by the time we're catching up with him here so i I really question throughout whether brad pitt is really supposed to be that good a spy or if he's just a little reckless and you know maybe has he's the humanity of the yeah yeah Yeah, he's the humanity of the film he he goes against redford's um, cold cynicism um and you know it's that birthday scene it's the fact that he that brad pitt's character figures out robert redford's character's actual birthday and gives him the gift through operation dinner out that is the kind of key to all this sort of emotional journey for the um, for redford's character i think it actually when you think because films are all about point of view and i think it's robert redford's film 
that's probably why we don't see enough of the relationship with Brad Pitt and Elizabeth Hadley, um, because it's supposed to be Robert Redford's point of view. It's his memory of what happened. Um, so the only way you could have worked in a bit more of that relationship is if we got a scene with them in prison together or something. But yeah, it's it's tricky. And you know, I, I I get both of your 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 outlooks on it, and you guys have seen this film probably more times than I have, or, or had longer to sort of dwell on the film a little bit. This is like my two watches in a day's fresh watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's totally valid. So, it's... but that, that that but this has always been how me and Cam split. He's he's the guy that's seen most of these films many times. Chris, you make films, so you of course you've got an eye for this thing. I'm just coming at it from like the layman. Oh, certainly I'm a layman anyway. And the other problem I had was, and this is a little one, I found the soundtrack to be a bit intrusive at times. <laughs> the choral singing, where yeah. it's like something happens and you hear a child like, Aah. and even like at the start, they like they cut in uh, Dire Straits' brothers at arms at, yeah, like yeah. during yeah. a conversation, and not even like the intro that's quite quiet. It's like the full on melody in the middle. I just think I'm trying to listen to Robert Redford act. Could you please turn it down? Yeah, yeah. there's some bits where it's really effective, and some bits where it's a bit like much, isn't it? But um, I, there's a particular sound in my head, and I can't think of how you describe it. Uh, with the tapes moving, what's that? You know, they're sort of sped up tapes. They're sped up and slowed down. What do you call that? Oh, sound? Yeah, yeah. A wipe or something. And it, it seems to be a very distinctive sound throughout the film. They have moments of it. You know? <laughs> and you had the Baywatch uh, theme playing over a whole scene as well. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That Baywatch scene's hilarious, actually. <laughs> like, Tony Scott, through his entire career, was never known to be a subtle filmmaker. And that applies no. to all of the, yeah, the, the music choices and the score choices. Because that choral singing was cracking me up. Every time something of sort of meaningful, emotional importance was supposed to be happening, I had this, like, young child singing under it. Uh, stuff like that made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. Blame Blame Ridley <laughs> yeah. is Gladiator. It's, it's um, uh, what's her name? I, I actually went to see her in concert, and I've forgotten her name now. Lisa Gerard. Lisa Gerard. Sort of, because um, even Leia Cake has it. and it, Lisa Gerard had this sort of, like, period. It was after Gladiator, where she has that kind of, like, you know, sort of weird wailing, and you can't quite understand what's going on, and it turned into kids doing it. Um, it just seemed to be a thing for through late 90s early 2000s films uh where this just sort of became a, a fashion um and it's, it's used an awful lot so yeah <laughs> i think the modern equivalent is the uh dum dum yes yeah. Wow. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah yeah the inception sound or the yeah. born identity drop noise that was in the trailer that like every mm. spy film trailer has to have now um uh, yeah <laughs> something very much of its time the smash screens with the times where it was like 802 and everything went to that like black and white smash oh yeah of the graphic <laughs> i was waiting for the uh i was waiting for the 24 the boop yeah beep, yeah boop. actually this i think 24 borrowed it from that didn't they? i should have done the intro actually i should have done the uh the following podcast is recorded in uh in two hours or something yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's in real time. In real was it, time. Yeah, yeah, it was at the beginning of 24. Had some, did it, was it a voiceover or did you just read it? Um, Whereas, like, the following, like, hour is in real time or something. It was a really dramatic voice, yeah. Yeah, it, it would be um, Kiefer Sutherland every episode. would be like, the, the following episode is in real time. <laughs> every week. It's like, we know Kiefer. We're watching the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Decisions like that graphic, though, reminded me of... um where tony scott would go like his directing would get mm. looser and looser and just much more experimental like you think of movies like man on fire which suddenly you're having dialogue from the movie like text from the from the dialogue just like splashing across the yeah. screen yeah and chris and i in a bit of a break in recording we're talking about like domino where i think that was the furthest he ever pushed it where domino just got really insane with repetitive 
dialogue and text on the screen and just crazy camera shots. And this feels like we're headed down that road. It's kind of the early precursor to where we're going to go. There's a film that's... So this is the... It's almost like the eras of Tony Scott, the, uh, should we say, the domino era and the pre-domino era. There's a film called Ride with the Devil he made for BMW. I don't know if you've seen these BMW short films. They're really great. They've got Clive Owen in them. And it's called Ride with the Devil. And, and Tony Scott has basically been given a few million dollars and Tony's decided, I want to try out all these um, textural techniques because he's interested in texture. And so he wants to try out these techniques with like hand-crank cameras with time and, you know... Dial, uh, with the graphics and so on and this film Ride for the Ride with the Devil is the film that totally um, he tries it out and thinks right this is working for me and it leaves like Man on Fire and stuff like that it's, it's really interesting but yeah do check out the BMW films if you've not seen them they came out um they came out in 2001 and Clive Owen is this sort of like mysterious driver and he's on and each short film um, he, he's on another mission um, and one of the short films uh, is called The Follow uh, which is a really cool kind of, um, not, it's sort of spyish, it's about surveillance, and it's really good. Well, I think that's our dislikes covered. Gents, before we get to the knock list, any final notes? I've got a couple myself. Chris, what do you have? Mm. Well, just reflecting on Tony Scott, because this is coming up to the 10th anniversary of his death, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he, he um, you know, seen as a sort of flashy filmmaker the thing that i've always admired about tony scott and if anything maybe even inspired my podcast a little bit i think tony scott michael mann definitely um inspired me on on um seeking out real people from that world trying to find talk to people who who know what spycraft is not just getting a script about spies and making a spy film for your imagination and i think that was one of the good things about tony scott he did go out and seek out real people so when he listens to some of the commentaries of his films like um we mentioned just a few minutes ago man on fire as kind of crazy as it is there's a lot of those that script was rewritten based on interviews of real people who'd either been victims of kidnapping in south america or had been the kidnappers or been people investigating it and i'm sure he probably did a similar process on spy game as well and um you know michael frost beckner who who wrote the original story as well i i, I know of him and his sort of you know he, he was behind the agency so he he very much had a commitment to sort of reality so i sort of celebrate this film for it being this flashy blockbuster that's sort of grounded in realism because it's very rare now very rare uh and actually this film would be very difficult to make today because of the the china angle maybe even the war on terror angle it, it, it's almost a film that probably you know might never get made if it hadn't been made when it was which is funny because it was a time where audiences didn't want to see that movie necessarily mm. so mm. that's notable um yeah i've got a few things i'll mention um i really enjoyed the whole um robert redford selling the real world of the spy where it's like you'll have a stick of gum pocket knife and a smile that's basically <laughs> your weapons that i enjoyed that and any scene where it was like scanning a diner we've seen this a few times now scott we've seen it in the born identity we've seen it in triple x so i appreciated seeing it here um if i'm to rank them i think born identity is still my favorite but this was probably better than the triple x one I don't know. I, I quite like the him picking up on those ladies' shoes. Oh, that is good. That, that is, is good. Fun. You can't go yeah. wrong with those scenes. We need to have more of those yeah, scenes. I, in movies. I think it, it's worked in all three of the films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, we saw the Jaws shot in this movie where Redford was on a roof, and we had the zoom in where the background pulls away, which is the famous shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The contra zoom. Yeah, where we had um, Chief Brody in Jaws when there's a shark attack. We get that mm, shot. Mm. Very iconic. So I loved seeing that here. And, um, boy, guys, th 
this movie looked like it was shot in the real world. So nice to see yeah. where we have so many movies now that look like they have green screen backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. It felt like I was in these locations in busy streets with people around. I really missed this. You know, I think of the movie um, The Eternals, the Marvel film from relatively recently yeah. about the great protectors of humanity, where it feels like every human person is uh, a green screen character in the background. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think of The Eternals at all. <laughs> Fair. I haven't since. Yeah. Um, but you're right, though. It, I mean, the last couple of films we've touched on, you know, Diamonds of Forever and The Liquidator, are both quite practical films because they were filmed in the 60s and the early 70s. But before that, we had Spy Kids 3D. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a nice change of pace for the 2000s. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Um, for me, I had a quick couple of discussion points just to throw out there. Mm. Go for it. The first one, and Cam touched on this on the intro about the film, is, of course, Brackett historically turned down Born Identity to do this film. Now, Matt Damon and Brad Pitt's careers have both been absolutely fine. But was this a good move for Brad Pitt? Or would you have liked to have seen him in The Bourne Identity? I would say this was probably a bad move in 2001. Mm. But, I mean, Brad Pitt won an Oscar a couple of years ago, so things turned out just fine. I mean, he's his star status did just fine. But I think maybe... Within the context of like 2001, 2002, he probably should have done Born. Yeah, it's weird. Thinking of Born and Brad Pitt, I'm not convinced. Not that I dislike Brad Pitt, but I just don't. I find uh, maybe it's because I, well, maybe I think too much of Richard Chamberlain. Now, there's a fun Born reference for you. But um, <laughs> maybe it, I just got too much of, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten his name now. Bloody hell. Yeah, what's his name? Um, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Thank you, Matt Damon. So, yeah, I've got too much of Matt Damon in my mind now of Born. I don't know. It's it's difficult to think of somebody else in that role, isn't it? I, I, I don't think we would have had sequels mm, i agree if brad yeah. pitt had done born identity we might have got supremacy maybe ultimatum but we definitely wouldn't have got jason Bourne in 2016 i think uh brad pitt's star was far <laughs> higher than uh, yeah. matt damon's at that point yeah but then there's the power of the contract <laughs> yeah i i wonder if born identity would have done a little bit better at the box office with brad pitt because matt damon wasn't really like a huge box office draw whereas like brad pitt was more hit or miss mm, mm. and i wonder if then the first one would have been a little bit more of a hit maybe not a you know huge blockbuster numbers but just that little bit of extra push i, I also wonder if um brad pitt is just the wrong person for ball yeah i think so and as chris alluded to I, I i don't whenever i think of brad pitt and i'm sure there's plenty of roles you could shout out to me both of you guys know more films than i do but i i tend to think him as a cheeky kind of winks at the camera a little bit. He's yeah. got that kind of edge to him. Whereas I think to be born, especially in like supremacy, you need to have a level of pathos. Mm. And I'm, I don't know if I could re recall Brad Pitt delivering that sort of level. Well, this might be the key to, I think Brad Pitt's one of those people who feels like life just goes his way and he hasn't had too much sort of, um, you know, he's quite good looking. He, he just feels like everything's been quite easy for him. Also Matt Damon, it could have, he's not particularly, um, I don't think he's a particularly handsome guy or whatever. And it's, it's sort of a bit more feels a bit more like he's a run to the litter kind of thing and had a, a few kickings in his life, you know? And I think Bourne needs that. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have, uh, bought, uh, Brad Pitt mopping the floors at Harvard and, and answering math questions on the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, as much as I did Matt Damon. I think Matt Damon has a little bit more of that character actor 
vibe. Like he likes to kind of disappear into a character. Whereas like Brad Pitt, so much of it is about that movie star charisma. And like a lot of his best performances, that's what fuels them. You know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is that movie star charisma that makes that character so iconic. Absolutely. I think, and then the second question I have, and this is, I, I did some reading uh, before we did the review. And a lot of people, and especially people on Twitter that reached out about this film as well, while I was discussing it with some people on Twitter before I did the review, a lot of people were saying that this is like a companion piece to Three Days of the Condor. And we've mentioned that film already. Now, I mean, people who have watched Three Days of the Condor know that Robert Redford is probably going to be dead in the next day or so. Hmm. So it's not a callback to his character per se. But do you think this works as a, like a, an add-on to the Condor? It's the same conversation that happened with the Marvel film Robert Redford was in. Um, Character-wise, no, because um, I don't think uh, Condor's going to be working for the CIA. No. Because they've basically screwed him over and, you know, potentially killed his friends in that film. Um, he, stylistically, like, his the way he's dressed totally is a callback. You know, like, the, the jacket, yeah, the grey jacket, there's the peacoat later on. Um, Tony Scott was definitely cruising off Redford's sort of three days the Condor kind of feel, but I don't think the film itself follows much really but i would say the same for like gene hackman coming back for you know enemy of the state like where that character is at the end of the conversation i don't know that <laughs> he would be in that same place so like i don't i don't mind it too much it's kind of just riffing off the concepts of those earlier characters mm -hmm. but i think it actually is the sort of thing that i would tell people to watch the two of them just because it's fun to see the kind of the echoes of those performances, especially as the actor has aged and kind of matured as well, you know, just as a talent. So as a companion piece to Condor, storytelling, character, not really, but I think it's kind of worth having the two of them side by side on the DVD shelf. Well, we all know the official sequel to Three Days of the Condor is, of course, Condor Man. Of course. <laughs> and I'll hear nothing more about that. <laughs> well, gents, I think uh, we've talked this film to a early grave <laughs> so let's get it in the books spy game knocklist yes or no chris you're our guest now cam as we have a guest quickly run us through what we're doing on the knocklist and then we'll ask the question yeah the knocklist is our tortured acronym for need to see official classics of the spy hearts podcast where every week after talking about a movie we decide if it belongs in the pantheon of all timers some movies that have made it on the list three days of the condor made it on zero dark 30 made it on um, and then some of the Bonds, like Goldfinger, um, Dr. No from Russia with Love. So, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, we try to kind of include all sorts of different types of spy movies. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Spy Game, it has twice the sex and half the foreplay. So I think it definitely fits on the knock list. He's using the line from the film. I like it. I like it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a yes. I've got some interesting views, but I want to hear Cam. What do you think? I think I'm a mild no on this one. And I think I kind of put it next to The Born Identity, which didn't quite make the list. That was one where I felt quite strongly didn't make the list the first time we watched it. Then I started to question myself and be like, oh, maybe we made a big mistake with The Born Identity. And when we did the commentary for the Patreon, I suddenly was like, you know what? I can actually track why I didn't put it on the list. So <laughs> with this one, it is kind of those weaknesses I mentioned up front, you know, that just sort of the lack of tension in terms of Redford feeling like there's anything that could ever stop him in a lot of these situations and the romance aspects. But like, it's a it's a good movie. I'd recommend people watch. I just think Three Days of the Condor made the list. I don't think this is as good as Three Days of the Condor or some of the others that have been on there. It's interesting you went no, Cam. I genuinely think you would have a, a soft yes. Right. 
that's where I thought you would come down. And so I thought I would have to be like you feel the other side. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because like this film is held up by a lot of people as a, a, a terrific spy film. Mm. I'm not sure I'd buy that personally. So my gut says no. But on the other side of that argument, for the most part, I did enjoy watching it. And I think what I'm finding is a conflict here between me putting on films I like and then films I objectively think are good or bad. Mm. Now, I put Ipcris File on the knock list. I said, yes, I don't like Ipcris File. I would never watch it again and I would be a happy man. I was able to put those two aside from each other. I think in this film I'm going to go the way of Cam and say a soft no. And that is by no means saying skip this film. I think for not even spy completionists, I think people who enjoy spy films should check out Spy Game. But if someone says to me, is this a need-to-see spy film? No, I'd probably send them in the direction of Three Days of the Condor. Well, I'm going to put on my sunglasses and drive off in my Porsche. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we have a bit of a situation, though, like Ronin, where like I was the one that really fought for Ronin. Like I thought Ronin belonged on the list. And, um, you know, the two people... I was on the podcast with felt not quite, not quite. And I think that's kind of where we land with spy game where I'm on the not quite, even though I think it's a really enjoyable movie. So, and maybe Scott, you're in the same boat. I think it's actually different because I I think for Ronan, me and uh, I believe it was Scott Renshaw that joined us for that one. Mm. We're we're quite happy with our no. Whereas you were very much in the yes camp. Whereas this is a different situation where we've Chris is, Chris, we know you like this film. Mm. You mention it on your website that you call out to Spy Game. So we know you're in the definite yes camp. But then me and Cam are like soft no. Like we could be convinced yeah. across. Yeah. But I, I think if we're trying to maintain the integrity of the knock list, which is it, 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 on shaky ground at the moment because <laughs> it's got. It's got like you only live twice and Thunderball on it. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, is it interesting? Yeah. Thunderball, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. You only live twice. I think Sean Connery looks hung over half the time. I voted no. It's the beauty. I voted no on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I, I think I need to go with my gut and say that this is a terrific film. Yeah. I just think there's a couple of things that pull it back from being great. And it's a shame because I I don't know what you needed. Well, I think you needed to have punched up the romance and put some tension in the Robert Redford sections. That's and I think that would have done it for me. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, what is it? I think the style gets in the way of the substance a little bit on this film. Yeah, speaking objectively, I think you know, um, if you compare it to some of the more um, deeper spy films, then yeah, it doesn't hold up as well as um, I would say. Fun enough, Three Days the Condor is not. It's it's funny. It's a funny film because it's not a particularly realistic spy film, but it's an enjoyable spy film, um, and it has a certain sense of time. Um, I think like this film gives you a much stronger flavor of what spying's actually like. If you were, if you had a a kid who's like, I'm, I'm going to go and join the CIA, watch this film, son. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then you'll get a feeling of what it might be like. You know, um, yeah. Uh, and and uh, yeah. I mean, just just for, like there's no. Like, you think of the scene in Three Days of the Condor with Max von Sydow and Robert Redford in the lift. Mm. What a oh yeah yeah yeah, tense, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Your heart is pumping. Scene, but nothing's happening. It's just tension, pure tension. I don't think this film ever gets that. And that's, for me, one of the things that makes this type of spy film great, that feeling of the walls closing in 
and this countdown, this build up to uh, you know, the catharsis at the end of the mm-hmm. film. Um, and I think you know that Brad Pitt and Catherine McCormick are getting out of that prison. You know that Robert Redford is escaping from the CIA facility. And so I, I think that's where it falls down. Um, but there you go. One yes and two no's. It's a rare occurrence we get those sort of <laughs> odds. Uh, but as such, Spy Game is narrowly missing the knock list. And so the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Chris, thank you for taking the time to join us this evening to talk about Spy Game. But before we let you go, we want to hear a little bit about where people can find more from you. Now, I mentioned your website earlier, which is Chris Carr with two R's. .co.uk. There'll be links in the show notes below, but where else can people find you? Yeah, so um, my podcast, Secrets and Spies, is on all the podcast apps, and I apologise, I still haven't built a website for it yet, but <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, if you just type in Secrets and Spies, you can find my podcast on there, and you can hear me talking to all sorts of interesting people, you know, real spies, authors, experts, and, and uh, you know, we talk about every sort of angle of espionage possible. Um, and uh, yeah, so no, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. It's been, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to talk about a film that, that I enjoy and talk about it critically. I haven't done that probably since university, to be honest. It's like, it's been fun. It's been fun. Well, we'd love to have you back when we tackle some of the, especially the more serious ones, because a lot of people want to come on and talk about James Bond. But when we can actually dive into some of these more serious ones and have someone with some insights into that world, that's always invaluable for us. So thanks. Well, thank you. Maybe we should talk about um, Ridley Scott's spy film. Oh, Body of Lies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that could be fun. Because that's an interesting film as well, which has a lot of uh, bases in reality and stuff. It's uh, no very interesting film. <laughs> Well, we've got uh, many spy films ahead of us, so I have no doubt you'll be uh, joining us again. But you said on your show, of course, it's filled with experts and real spies, so we'll never be there, of course. (laughs) We are not experts in it. I'm planning, you know, I want to try and do a um, a spy podcast as special at some point. And and also I want to do Christmas, um, you know, like some sort of fun episode about Christmas and spy films and stuff like that. So, no, I definitely would love to hook you guys up with... um, Oh my god, I remember their name now. Uh, the uh, the Rob and Rob Film Podcast. They're two good friends of mine. They're very knowledgeable about films, but also love spy films and stuff. And I'm sure, um, I'm sure you guys would really hit it off. So uh, maybe we should try and do a five way podcast one day. That'd be interesting. That's a, that's a busy pod right there. But no, set, send their details over. We, we, we will gladly have uh, people in the know on the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Chris, once again, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. Spy Game did not make the knock list, unfortunately. But if you want to find out the films that did, you can check us out on letterbox.com slash spyhards to find the knock list. Can, what are we talking about next week? We've talked about real-world spycraft, Scott. That's what this podcast is going to be about going forward. So we are, of course, tackling Triple X, Return of Xander Cage next week from 2017. Vin Diesel's back, baby. <laughs> yeah, we, we thought we had enough camp with Diamonds of Forever, and then we made it really serious this week. So we thought, no, we're going to go back down the outrageous vein and uh, basically jump out of planes with Xander Cage again. I'm glad that he is back to take us to the Xander Zone. He loves that shit. <laughs> and we've actually got a, another interview. So, I mean, this week we have, of course, Dan Mindell, so look out for that on Friday. But next week we're joined by Scott Frazier, who wrote Triple X 3. Um, so that should be a really good interview too so there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to watch triple x3 the return the triumphant return of xander cage and join us next week do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y 
H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But when walking into a shitstorm, I like to know which way the wind's blowing.